welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of Speak Up Please. I'm your host, Martin Lovell, and I would personally like to welcome Elders past, present and emerging, such as my next guest, Zachary Penrith-Pachowski. In light of recent events, I'm going to give people within the LGBTIQ community who are of diverse cultural backgrounds, sexual orientation and life experience a chance to express themselves and a platform to tell their stories. This is Zachary's story. I hope you enjoy. I am Zachary Joseph Penrith-Pachowski. I am Yorta Yorta, Jaja Wurrung. I'm also Polish. I'm black. I'm queer. Um, yeah. That's, I don't know how to define myself. Somebody has just to do it for me. I'm sorry. I guess I'm a loudmouth, like, first and foremost. Even if I don't understand things, I can know they're wrong without understanding logistics of them. So I'll often tweet or say something that I don't entirely understand because I feel it's wrong. And it hasn't served me that well yet. Probably never will, but we'll find out along the way through my career where I go, who I am. And I guess that I'm a brother, I'm a son, I'm an uncle to my two beautiful nephews, Caden and Chris. I'm a friend. I guess most importantly, um, who I am is defined by my family and being a brother and being a son are two of the proudest things I've ever done and also being an uncle. Um, my sister and my mum are the two biggest influences in my life. They're my protectors, they're my people, and they're always going to be my people. We fight a lot, but that just comes with the territory. At least we're vocal about it and we don't get passive-aggressive and do subtle things. We just, like, push it all out there, mob style. Being a grandson, that's also a big duty of mine, or it was until... My nan's passing away. She was like the person that I wanted to be. She worked at the Department of Justice. She was one of the only Aboriginal people to work in government or at the Department of Justice at that time. And I I hope I do her proud. And I hope I do my dad proud. And who I am is so based on the people that I've lost along the way. But it's not all dark. It's sometimes funny. And hopefully I can um, put some humour to the darkness. Because, I don't know, that's what we do in this family. And that's who I am as a person. And I don't know how to define myself. So I'm sorry for the psycho babble. So here we go. I'm Zach. I'm Yorta Yorta, Jajawarang. I'm Polish and a bit Ukrainian. I'm a lot of things. Oh, and I also write things. And I don't know. I'm, I'm trying. That's what I'm doing. That's who I am. I'll start at the beginning. On my Polish side, my grandma... Um, Nana Pachelski, she was put into Treblinka, which was a pretty much guaranteed death camp among the time of Hitler and World War Two, And she got onto a boat 
after walking in the snow, um, she was an asylum seeker. She walked in the snow barefoot to get here to Australia and she lived in Warrigal and she gave birth to my dad, Joseph. So my middle name's Joseph, his first name's Joseph, but everybody called him Usual. And everybody who thought they were clever used to call him unusual because usual in Polish means little boy and she had an older son. So she would say, get over here, Tony, and usual little boy. But all of the people in their Catholic school thought that was just my dad's name. So on his taxi license, because he was a taxi driver and on all of his documentation, usual, U-Z-O-U-L, was his name. I remember my Nana Pachelski had um, one of those old wood fire coal stove kind of things. Um, she lived in Warrigal, which I recently found out was named after the plant Warrigal, which is an indigenous plant to Australia that you can eat. Um, she would... Was food, food was her thing. Always wanting to feed people. Would not waste a scrap of anything. She was just a beautiful, magnificent person who... We couldn't... Like, I, I'm bad at understanding accents, but her I could understand completely. She was a family person who was oriented towards protecting and looking after people. And... She was very sassy as well in her little moments. And I can still, like, I can sense her and I could breathe her. And, like, I know that she's around. I'm not a very spiritual person, but I just, I think that she was a really important influence on my life, even though I didn't get to see her as often as I, I guess I should have. But... That's just how life ebbs and flows. She made a mean borscht, which is beetroot soup, for like those of us who don't know what borscht is, but with rye bread, and it was the most... She used to freeze it in ice cream containers, and she always used to give us peppermint ice cream, peppermint chalk chip ice cream, and her house was spotless, and she looked after my cousin Paul and Lynette, and... They were basically like children to her and from my... Like, I don't quite understand this period in time, but um, Paul and Lynette were very special people. Lynette is still in my life. Unfortunately, my cousin Paul, when I was probably six years old, he had um, suicided. And I remember that day, and that's one of my very first memories. He... Um, his method was he had um, he gassed himself in a car in my nan's house and I was probably five or six years old. And me and my sister, we loved him. He introduced us to like Queen and the Rolling Stones and Nirvana and all of those like trendy rock groups at the time. And he was a really good person and and... I still miss him and only in my later years would I find out that he was trying to figure out a way out of Warrigal, out of like that small town life.
And I think that leaves a really interesting juxtaposition because it's like, for me, someone from metropolitan Melbourne to go visit a small town, country Victoria, like that's a treat for me to go out there. But for people out there, um, it's not all that it seems to be and they want to be here. So... I don't know, he's he's one of the people I miss even though I didn't get to know him that much, but I still very much remember him. He's one of my first memories. And I still, like, I remember his jet black hair and he looks kind of, in some ways, similar to my dad. I remember um, specifically we, um, when he passed away, uh, me and my sister were outside. We weren't allowed in. All the grown-ups had to go in. And then um, we got these icy poles, you know, in the plastic tube things. And I got a green one and I thought it was lime. And I was so disappointed when I, like, started eating it and it was mint. And I don't know why that memory stands out so, like, strongly for me. But that's part of, I don't know... That's just what it is. I remember the taste of mint. And my sister had this, like, raspberry flavoured or whatever. And she would not share it. She would never share anything. And that kind of speaks to who she is as an adult. It's kind of interesting how we grew up and who we are as grown-ups is very informed by who we are or who we were as children. So we had um, her, Nana Pachowski. She was white-haired Nan. And then we had black-haired Nan, who was my grandmother, my Aboriginal grandmother, who was Jaja Rawang. Um, she was black-haired Nan. And I would move heaven and mountains for her. Her story, quite like Nana Pachowski's, was born of men letting you down and she was also aboriginal in a time where it wasn't okay to be aboriginal she was born in a humpy um which means basically like a shanty town under the bridge um she had pet turtles and kangaroos and stuff like that and they were always on the watch out for government cars because this was in the time of the stolen generation so when that lady tried to, like, rip... There's this social media video of this lady. Her name is actually Karen. Tries to rip down the Aboriginal flag from this Aboriginal family's home. That was beautiful to watch. Because it was, like... A totality of everything that had happened. And she proclaimed, Go back to the humpy by the river. <laughs> And my grandma was born in a humpy by the river. So, fuck you, Karen. And that's her actual name. And interestingly enough, my mum's name is Karen. <laughs> my grandma, she was... She was Carmel Nelson. Carmel Priscilla Nelson. And she was an unstoppable force in my life. And I'm very grateful that she was in my life. She's somebody who I would do anything for. And unfortunately, she passed away in 2013. Um, it was 
for me, interesting, not interesting, it was devastating uh, to see somebody who was so vivacious and filled with life and such a fighter because what she had done in her lifetime was so interesting. She lived in Marupna Shepton area and she had all these babies. She had five babies and there was sexual assault on a molestation of these children by her um, partner, who was a truck driver named Victor Barry. And Victor was a white guy and he um, he was attracted to her. She was quite a beautiful, like remarkably beautiful woman. And she was with him for about 10 years. So for 10 years, this kind of abuse went on. And my mum, my auntie, and all of my uncles had gone through this, but they didn't each know about each other's abuse. And once it came out, because my mum never talks about this, we don't eat pork because um, he used to feed them, like, um, pork brains, knuckles, you know, all that sort of stuff. So me and my sister, we don't eat pork in solidarity, but also because that's, like, foreign to us as well. Same way as turkey. It's like, we don't eat turkey because I've never had turkey before. (laughs) Carmel, my grandmother, moved to Melbourne and he was a truck driver. So what had happened is there's a joke in my family that my dad could pack a car up in a couple of hours and leave. Like, she was good at just fleeing. And that's what happened. She had... He was a truck driver. He was doing a job. And she had found out about what was happening to her children. And she packed up a car and left. And she came to Melbourne. When she got to Melbourne, they lived in a flat. So her and her five kids... Four? Five? Um, and Victor, or as my auntie and my mum would call him, that fat cunt, he turned up and he begged for her forgiveness and tried to get her back. And she had considered it. And then my auntie and my mum were like, well, you can go, but we're not coming with you. And Nan, obviously... Oh, not obviously, because that's not the way it always goes for many people. But she picked her children over a man. And back in those days, to be a woman without a man must have been a great, like, disappointment or something. And in the meantime, my mom, who was born in 1962, still wasn't considered a human being anyway, because she was born Aboriginal full Aboriginal. Not that percentage matters, but back then it very much did. So these days when people ask me, or they compliment me saying that I don't look that Aboriginal, it's an insult because that means that Aboriginal is ugly when I think, or I hope that I will eventually think that I'm beautiful. I don't see it yet. I I don't know. I don't think that I'm particularly attractive or anything like that, but I think I have 
I hopefully have some form of beauty inside because of all of these like remarkable women, women who guided me and protected me and helped me become who I needed to be. My nan had this um, weird obsession, not weird, but she really loved the alien movies, alien sci-fi. She especially loved Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. But out of all of these things, her favourite tool is the flamethrower. Even in her later years, um, she got dementia, Parkinson's and all of that. And such a vivacious woman who had lived such a big life, who had struggled and carried a family. And she, by the way, when she got to Melbourne, she did night school with my mum. And she ended up working at the Department of Justice as one of the first Aboriginal people to work there. And she was remarkably obsessed with a flamethrower still. So anytime she would come over for Christmas, we would be watching Alien, Aliens, Predator, all of that sort of stuff. And so I have this addiction to sci-fi movies because of this. And she hated dialogue. And this is very similar to my mum and my sister. They all hate dialogue and they're like, hurry up, just use the fucking flamethrower. One time, um, I, I was at my nan's house. She, she bought her own house in Castlemaine near Bendigo. And for an Indigenous woman to own a house is massive. But uh, me and my sister, we used to go visit her every summer. And she didn't have a... We were her closest, um, like, grandchildren, me and my sister. She always loved us. She always remembered us. She always, even when her dementia and all of that kicked in, she always knew who we were. But we have other cousins who weren't that great and hadn't seen her for years and years and years. And so one of them rang her and she's so, like, she... She's so used to, like, other people's bullshit that when they rang, it was like, ring, ring. Hello. Hi. Uh, hi. Hi, Nanny Carmel. It's blah, blah, blah. Um, how are you doing? And then my nan would say straight back, I don't have no money. Bing. And then the phone would hang up because she always assumed people wanted something out of her instead of her. It was just a really interesting characteristic. And it's kind of funny because I have that as a 29-year-old now. I always expect that somebody either wants something for me or wants to do something to me. Nobody just wants to be near me. So that's always been a characteristic I've carried. In terms of mental health, um, it's not really discussed or it never. it's never really been discussed in my family, which is unfortunate. And we just, we're, as an Aboriginal person, we're, or I am, expected to just endure or go through it and eventually it'll be all right. Like, miraculously, it'll work out on its own. But that wasn't to be. 
for me because obviously in my life and the life of my ancestors, nothing comes easy. So here's the part where um, queerness, aboriginality and all of the things kind of come together. I think my family, we were defined as being like the poor people. Like, um, there used to be those Adidas shoes with the three stripes down the side that were like, um, velour or, um, whatever that material was. And I had the, the cheap home brand versions of them, which, like, I don't, there's no pity or anything for them. We did what we could. Those shoes are fucking 80 bucks today. And so... We did the best we could. Like, my mum did the best she could for us to fit in. and But our school uniforms, they were always, um, they were worn out. So our school uniform was navy blue and um, pale blue. So navy blue shirts, uh, polo tops and everything. And then navy blue shorts, pants, jumpers. And... They were like 40 bucks a piece. And that's a lot of money when you don't have money at all. My dad was a taxi driver. And so he would work from 4pm till 4am. And we would wait. And he would stay awake to come home and get us shoes. So he would stay awake at 4am and then wait for us to wake up at around... 6.30, 7am, and then we'd have to take a day off school just so they could get us shoes. <laughs> and it's really interesting because I know stories of people, friends of mine, who had to share shoes with their mother or share shoes with their father, like, because they could only afford the single pair. So we were quite lucky in the scheme of things from being commissioned housing, we are pretty good. We lived in a red brick house that was built around the First World War or the Second World War, something like that. We were poor, extraordinarily poor, but we made it work. Even today, like um, Gail from Housing, she has visited our house and done inspections and we don't have hot water. We haven't had hot water for four or five years, you don't even need to turn on the cold tap anymore. So I wait um, for midday because I know the sun will have hit the water tank and that our, our, our hot water is literally heated by the sun instead of being heated by what it should be heated by. And this is just the state of like commission housing, which I was born into and I grew up in. I've lived in this same house for the 29 years I've been alive. I was born at Sandringham Hospital and I've lived in Hampton all of my life. I've never lived anywhere else. And it's extraordinarily weird because being black in Hampton, which is an extremely... I need to stop saying extremely. It's it's a very, like, elite suburb where people are very liberal, 
which is interesting because liberal doesn't even mean liberal. Um, I've had police called on me because I was walking home from the gym and they saw a black fella, so they were like, this person obviously doesn't fit in with our neighbourhood, so call the cops on him. I've had cars follow me wondering why I'm here in this Bayside suburb. And the point that I'm trying to make is that I've always been, like, um, misplaced or put somewhere where I shouldn't be or I don't belong. I've always felt like I don't belong. I've never felt that sense of belonging in any capacity in any way. Like, I've never, in the queer community, in the gay community, on Grinder, on dating sites, on anything, I've never felt like... I belong here because I've been outright rejected or made fun of because I'm, like, damaged or I'm hurt or... I don't know. I'm just not this picture of what I guess people think I should be, which is this grateful Aboriginal, this grateful, like, black guy... I'm happy I have to be positive all the time. I'm going to share with you all of the positive things instead of the darkness and, like, the shit things that happen when you come from the places that I've been. It should always maintain happiness. And this has happened throughout my career when I've done writing. I've always been told, no, they don't want to hear about that. Like, your darknesses, your dark shit... Like, my father's suicide, which we'll talk about later. They don't want to hear about that. They want to hear about the good, happy Aborigine. They don't want to hear about the struggling one. They don't want to hear about the one that like, has real-life situations. And it's really interesting because on social media, I follow a lot of white fellas. And they will literally encourage each other like, pack a sandwich if you're going to go visit Centrelink or anything to do with housing. And I always found it interesting because the squeaky wheel gets the oil. So if they complain the loudest, they which they do, they get the most attention. But this is just so normalised for people like me that it's not even worth mention. So then I watch people mention it, and I'm like, oh, well, okay. You got it. You get all the attention. It's not about the attention, but it's about a white person said it, so they're going to get, like, something corrected about this. It doesn't happen, but I don't know. People listen to white people. They don't listen to me. When I write about my um, experience being queer, and Aboriginal, it always is faced by white, cis, gay guys trying to destroy my narrative or whatever the fuck, but I'm just trying to tell you how it is for me. But it's always, like, faced with this. And people think that being queer is the equivalent with being liberal or left-wing, but it really is not. It really absolutely is not. I know some 
queer people who are like proud of their right wingness, who are proud of their racism, who think that this is a point of their personality. And I would love to like understand where that comes from, but I guess they'd love to know where I come from because I, from their perspective, I'm always playing this role of a victim and I don't view myself as a victim and I'm always going to, like, come back. I will always bounce back. Punch me back seven times, I'll come back eight. That sort of thing. I've never been, like, told who to be, what to do. I've always had this confidence from my grandmother, from my sister, from my mum. I've never been told who to be, how to be, until I turned 18. And then it was a whole new world, especially on dating apps and all of that sort of thing. So I would go on Grindr and I would hear no rice, no spice. And I would instantly avoid these people, but they would be attracted to me. And then I would tell them, oh, I'm Aboriginal and Polish. And they'd say, you don't look that abo. My first boyfriend, he said, you don't look like an abo which at the time was almost a compliment. And this isn't the first time that this has happened. I wrote a whole thing for Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. There's a chapter, Abonos, written by yours truly. It's about this guy, Andy, and my best friend at the time, Melinda, and how they dealt with my Aboriginality or how they didn't deal with my Aboriginality. And I have an update about that, which is kind of interesting. The whole point is that who I am or who I was was never acceptable or never... Like, I was just never taken in or a person that was worth anything. I was worthless. But then I recall all of the achievements that my grandmother had made. Like, um, black-haired Nan, my Aboriginal Nan, and then my Polish Nan... Escape Treblinka, like, I cannot be a little bitch about these kind of things. I have to very cleverly, carefully word things to make sure that I'm not taking anything away from them. Somebody owned them. Owned them. Like a human spirit, a soul. Somebody owned who they were. And that's not okay. And nobody will ever own me. And my defensiveness is entirely built from this. And it's hard to crack in to who I am. And mentally, it's hard to be vulnerable. And when I am vulnerable, it's really hard to be received very well by white fellas. Um, it doesn't go so well. I'm... I have been um, doxxed. I've been pushed as the victim. I've been... Oh, wait, no, not pushed as the victim. I've been told that I'm victim-playing. And they will downplay the story, but the import, like the impact on me is forever. But that doesn't matter in their opinion. Especially with Abo Nose. The story with Abo Nose is that I was with a friend, um, my best friend at the time. We were probably like... 14 or 15, and we were looking at photos on MySpace, because MySpace was the rage at the time. We were looking at photos, and then her 
new boyfriend at the time said, she has elbow nose. And I left. I left her house. And I, w- I would visit almost every day because we had nothing to do. And I was told that I was the drama queen. I was always making things about me. I was, like, all the worst things. And she apologised recently because we got in contact and I started speaking to her again and I miss her dearly because she was somebody who I thought understood where I came from because parts of her mirrored parts of me. Like, we both came from commission housing. Our houses, uh, they looked the same. Like, she didn't need to tell me where the like the bathroom was because her house was by design exactly mirroring mine. She was somebody who I thought like I could go through it with and then she defended him instead of me and that's where we are. Um I recently yeah have made contact with her. Um we I thought we were good friends. She's got alcohol issues and she's still with the guy that said the abo nose remark, Andrew, and she is she said she was sorry. I don't know how to like I don't know how to take that. But then she eventually we were, we had only been speaking for about six months, and this is in this past year. We hadn't spoken for, like, almost six years. She recently started hanging out with a guy that had a swastika tattoo. And that was really weird to me, because uh, swastika's not my thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I had spoken to her on the phone and said, I don't fuck with Nazis, and I don't fuck with people who fuck with Nazis. And she went quiet, and I had realised at that time that maybe I'm the one that's going to go down again, again. It's always going to be me. Like, um, I should tolerate a swastika tattoo or an abo nose joke or if I illuminate the situation and say this is this isn't right, I'm the problem. And she would tell me that um Matt, I think that was his name, she would tell me that but he's a nice guy. And in my opinion he still has a swastika tattoo, so he had, like, enough of a belief in some sort of, like, ideology that he believed enough to get a swastika tattoo. And how am I to be friends with somebody who is friends with somebody that has a swastika tattoo? It it just won't happen. I have family who has survived some of the darkest and ugliest parts of history and who have also overcame those darkest parts. I never want my family to be defined by the darkest parts of history as pity or victims or anything. 
even though they were, I want them to be defined by the things that they overcame. But that just can't happen when I try to reconnect with a friend or somebody who was my best friend. And they're seeing a guy who is tattooed with a swastika. When I talk about these people, they think it's, um, like, tactically, like, um, I'm doing something out of hurt, which is what I used to do. Um, there's a long history there, and that's for me personally. So, I'd like to discuss my drug use, and, um, yeah, all of that sort of stuff. So... I dated a guy, his name was Sean, um, I actually thought he was cheating on me, because I was seeing him for, like, a year, right, and then <laughs> he would disappear, and I knew he had Thursday nights and Friday nights off, I think it was, I can't remember quite well, but then he would disappear sometimes, and so I thought he was seeing other guys, but he had also, he's not out, and he had only previously been with women before me, and then I turned up at his place and demanded a response, and then I realised, and I saw that he had a crack pipe and all of that sort of, like, drug paraphernalia there, which, instead of running away, I came towards because... I loved this man. He was my first love. He was the person that I thought would be with me until, you know, he was a bit older than me. So I was like, I'll see you the day you die. (sighs) It didn't happen that way. He, it's a longer story. It includes my dad and how he suicided. But Sean was somebody who taught me a lot of things about myself. He was somebody who, he defended me against a lot of other people's bullshit on dating sites, on whatever, because we were never solidly together. We had like this open relationship style thing, but he would be outraged when somebody was racist to me, even though (laughs) on our first time meeting, he asked if I was half abo. (laughs) A couple of, like, we were seeing each other for about four and a half years. I remember we met and we chatted on MSN. That's how, like, yeah, that's how long ago it was. And when my dad died, um, which I should talk about, I should explain, but Sean just disappeared. He vanished He was there for a week every day, but then he vanished and he said he couldn't handle seeing me so sad, which was really wonderful because imagine actually being so sad. So I guess I should talk about the dad stuff now and this is where mental health comes in. My dad's name, he was Joseph Henry Pachelski. My name is Zachary Joseph Penrith Pachelski. Um, he was 
probably the whitest of whites you could ever see. He was, like, very, like, Slavic or whatever it is. Like, Eastern European. Blonde hair, blue eyes. Everything you could imagine a Polish person might be. And then my mum was, like, the darkest of darks. She was... And she is. <laughs> she's still alive. Um, she's... Aboriginal, 100%, if percentages matter to you. I'm so used to explaining percentages of my family. I'm exactly half-caste and somebody who would have been taken away in the stolen generation, so there we go. He left Warrigal, he went to university, he drove taxis, and the way my mum would explain how they met would be... She was on her way home from working at the Indigenous Legal Service. She, her car was at the mechanics, so she had to catch a taxi. And he happened to be the taxi. And she invited him in for a cup of tea and he never left. That would be her story. And then a couple of years later, probably five years after they met, they had my sister, Kira, Kira Hope. Penrith Pachowski, and then they had me two years later, and there's plenty of photos of them with my sister Kira, there is hundreds if not thousands of photos, but god, they must have gotten tired by the time I came along, because they were like, oh fuck it, like barely took photos of me, and even when I am in a photo, it's bl- I'm blurry. <laughs> On the... 29th of September 2014, just after my 24th birthday, my dad um, made a decision to end his life. Um, He was still with my mum. A lot of people assume that he was the Aboriginal one out of my parents because of Aboriginality and suicidality. A lot of people think a lot of things about him. He had a lot going for him. He was 60 years old. He had just turned 60. And it's it's still there. It still hurts. It's, it's never not going to stop. I'm sitting here in my spare room, picking at the carpet, trying to think of a way to describe um, how that, how that hurts, um, it's undescribable. I enjoy, um, like, saying things for shock value and seeing, um, people's faces when I say dumb shit, but this time it just wasn't, it was actually shocking shit (laughs) and it was real. So I woke up. It was probably 8.15am. I made toast and baked beans and a cup of tea in my kitchen. But I never looked out the window. And if I did look out the window, I would have seen him. And so I made those. I ate them. I went back to sleep. My lamp was turned off because he was obsessed with electricity. He was obsessed with, everybody turn the lights off. Like, we can't afford this shit, that kind of thing, because we're poor, obviously. And then even even when he t- 
took his own life, suicided, whatever. He still turned off my lamp beside my bed. And then I noticed, because he was a taxi driver, it was a Monday morning and normally he would get a lot of fares that were in cash and he would pay all of like he would pay the bills on the Monday morning. So he would um stay awake till the post office was open because that's back in the day before oh it's not back in the day. He was just like against the internet. So he would pay his bills in cash in person. He never had a bank account. He never did any of that shit. He never had savings. He didn't have superannuation. Nothing. But he would go pay in cash. And so I thought that's what was happening. And then I went back to sleep. And I woke up at about 11 o'clock because I had nothing to do. And then my dogs, Stella and Misty, they were, they looked, I don't know. If you have dogs, you know what I mean. Or any pets or anything for that matter. You can tell they're different barks or different cries or different anything. And so his car was in the driveway, but he wasn't in bed with my mum. And that was when, like, the gears started turning and I knew something was wrong because this had never happened before. Um, and I checked the car, um, I checked the back seat because occasionally he would fall asleep in the back seat of the taxi or his car while waiting for his job to go off. And because the, it, like, I don't know if anybody's familiar with taxis, but the machine goes beep, beep, beep when there's a job available, if you're in the area. And he would do that around here in Hampton because, especially on a Monday morning, because a lot of them would be airport jobs, which would be worth a lot of money. And they would pay the bills. And... He wasn't there. He wasn't asleep in the back of the car. I checked the lounge room. He wasn't there. I asked mum where dad is. He wasn't there. And I... I walked um, into the bathroom and, like, all the rooms of my house. And it's a tiny piece of shit house. It's commission housing. Red brick house. There's not much to... Like, there's no many, There's not many places you can hide. And he wasn't in any of the rooms. He wasn't in the car. So I went outside into the backyard, which my, my dogs kept barking and making a weird noise. And I feel like an idiot that I never listened to them or paid attention. And I walked outside. And there he was. It's not normal to see what I saw, um, I, it's been five years and I see it every single day. I didn't recognise that he was dead immediately. Um, he had hung himself or hanged himself, whatever. And I didn't realise he had done that. So, because from my my perspective, I had, I I was looking at him, and he it just looked like he was looking at the sun. 
because his head was facing up. And I took a few steps towards him and I was like, Dad, what are you doing? And then it was, um, Dad, what have you done? So I went back into the house. Apparently I made a noise. And this is in the official police description. A noise. And I grabbed my mum by the arm and I walked straight to the driveway and I called 000 and they asked me, police, fire or ambulance? And I was like, I don't know. My dad's dead. He's killed himself. And they were like, police, fire or ambulance? And I was like, can you tell me? Because this is obviously like not a regular occurrence in my life. God hope. But yeah, I hung up on the person <laughs> because they were like, police, fire, or ambulance. And I was like, I don't know. Um, he's dead. He, so ambulance, no. Um, I don't know. Police, maybe. Anyway, I hung up on the person because they kept getting aggressive at me because I didn't know what I wanted. And then they said, well, if you don't tell us, we just won't send anybody. So I was like, fine then, don't send anybody. And I hung up. A few minutes went by. Police, fire and ambulance all came at the same time. <laughs> um, I remember the police officer. I really hope he's well. It's a really interesting story. I had to explain the whole thing to him. Um, I... I had to describe um, what was, who he was as a person, that him and my mum were still together. Um, his name was Jim M. I, I'm not going to say his last name because it's pretty identifiable, but he was an amazing person. And so I'm sitting there in my T-shirt and track pants, not wearing any undies, and my favourite track pants had a rip right in the crotch. So my junk is hanging out. And I had a, an interview with him. I'm sitting on the stairs. So my dick and balls are hanging out. And he's talking to me all serious faced. He was an amazing person. He was really good at interviewing. My sister turned up. That's... That was when it all went to hell. Um, my sister, she was... I think she was about 20 weeks pregnant with her first son, Caden. Um, his name is Caden Joseph. Um, she had prepared things for with the intention that my dad would still be alive, like world's best grandpa mugs or T-shirts or whatever. And it, and she and I hadn't spoken for a very long time. And I regret that and that'll never happen again. But um, she accepted. I called her I when I had hung up on the... Um, triple zero operator. I called her and I said, Dad's dead. And the scream. I've never heard anybody scream like that before. It was like 
a soul cry. Like, if you were to, like, I don't know, uh, it was just the most, the biggest scream I've ever heard come out of the tiniest little body I ever saw. And it had even made um, the coroner, the fire, the police, and the ambulance people cry too. And they are probably used to seeing something like that because it's not uncommon, our story. And I need to stop saying that it's not uncommon because it happened. It's something that's real. And just by saying it's common doesn't mean it's any less real, so. But what happened was um, my balls and my dick was hanging out and... He went through this, like, 45-minute interview with me and then he said, by the way, um, you might want to adjust yourself. And then I looked down and I realised what he was saying. So I fixed that, went inside, I had a shower, I changed my clothes, I opened up all of the blinds in my house, all of the blinds had always been closed. There's a lot of dust in this house. I needed sunshine. And I didn't know anything other than I needed that sunshine or light. It sounds fucking ridiculous. And I understand that. And I'm not like a spiritual person by any means. I don't believe in astrology. Whatever the fuck. I'm a Virgo. Whatever. But... Something happened that day where the sunlight felt like it would solve everything and all of my heartbreak. And at the same time, I'm looking after my mum, who's had several heart attacks and strokes. And we're still reeling from the death of my grandmother, which was only a couple of months earlier. So we're all like the blind leading the fucking blind. But there we were, suddenly, like, with everything and without everything at the same time. And one of the... I'm... Like, um, I I hope that my family look at me as a problem solver, because I think I am. And I think that's one of my, like, best skills. I can be as fucked up as you could possibly be mentally, physically, whatever, but I'll still try and help. And dad didn't have superannuation, any savings, any money, any, anything. So when he died, I sold everything that I owned to be able to get him buried. There was even a, um, like before crowdfunding or whatever was a thing, or it might've been around that time. I'm not sure. It's all hazy. Um, But a lot of my friends helped me raise money to help bury him. And it wasn't even, it wasn't a funeral where we had a service. It was a graveside funeral. And I didn't even know what to say. I had arrived with my boyfriend at the time, Sean. And I was meant to say a few words. I don't know. I was, I felt put on the spot and I don't even remember what I said. 
And then he was gone into the ground in Warrigal. And that was it. We didn't even get to um, see him or anything like that. And I had pushed for... My mum wanted to for me to buy a whole new suit for him to wear in the coffin or whatever. But I was like, no, he needs to wear his leather jacket and his hat that he'd always worn as a cab driver. He needs to, like, wear what he always wore. And, like, why make it, like, why deviate from the plan? (laughs) So, oddly, rarely, I won. And we agreed on him being buried in his leather jacket. But it was really weird because at the few, I don't know why I expected to be able to see him again. But we didn't. And that was it. It was like, that was it. It was so strange. Even thinking about it now, it's like I watched a movie and that's not something that happened to me or my family. Because we bounced back and recovered quite, like, um, quickly. Not quickly, but at least I, I don't know, I didn't bounce back quickly at all. It destroyed me. It Like, who he was was part of who I am. And part of my queerness is so based on who he was as a father. Because... When I came out, um, well, I didn't exactly come out. My sister outed me. She, it was a, it's kind of dumb, but it's important. And I still kind of resent her to this day about it. So, Kira, if you're listening, I love you, but I hate you. Um, she would say faggot and all of that a lot. And we were talking on MSN. We had computers in both of our bedrooms while in the same house, while in the next bedroom. And she said, um, I, oh, I wanted to get a haircut. And she said, only faggots get their haircut. And I said to her, so what if I am one? And she is the most accepting person that's ever, like, lived on this planet. For a straight person, right? And she went out to my mum and said, Mum, Zach's gay. And my mum said, as a first reaction, he can't inherit anything anymore. Not that my mum even had things that I wanted to inherit. I had never seen my sister so angry before. It looked like she was about to, like, get in a physical fight with my mum. My sister was so disappointed. And my mum weirdly became religious, had prayer beads, um, like those wooden prayer bead kind of things, and listening to the, like, you know, 5am on public television, they play, like, um, those, like, evangelical things, whatever, about how, like, I'm going to hell is basically the message. My sister, furious. My mum, aggro, even told me to kill myself because that would be better than telling people that she had a gay son. And that's not something I share openly because 
at this current time, I really respect my mum and I hope that she respects me. I'm not too sure, but I, I don't, I don't know how to deal with that. Um, I don't know how to deal with being outed by my sister. All I know is that I am loved by my sister at the very least. And I hope that I'm loved by my mum. And I hope, like, her initial reaction was just some, like, reactionary bullshit. Because we all do that. So, I don't know. That's what I think it is. That's what I hope it is, at least. But anyway. After my dad died, um, so that's September 29. Um, literally a month later, I was in university and I did my certificate in alcohol and other drugs and then I did my diploma in alcohol and other drugs and then I went on and I didn't get to finish year 12 because I was my mum's carer and I was really clever and I did advanced maths I did English lit like I did all of the like highbrow subjects or whatever the fuck but I never finished year 12 so university, I thought, wasn't an option for people like me. But I got there. And then I did criminology and psychology. Double major. And I used it immediately. As soon as I finished, got a job with it. And I've been told by my manager, by other people, to stop saying I won. Like, I've won, like, cash and prizes on Wheel of Fortune because I earned, I earned, I did well. I got a 3.8 out of 4.0 GPA. My sister, since then, has had another baby. His name is Chris. He's beautiful. Um, my mum, she's still doing, as she will always do, being a battle axe of her personality. And... I don't know. We're okay. We reflect, but it's not, I miss this per. Oh, it is, I miss this person. It's not, I'm hurt and I'm damaged and it, it doesn't make us cry. It's, remember when dad did this dumb thing? Like, my sister, for instance, would say, Hey, Dad, I got an iPhone 4. And Dad, because he had shit-ass hearing, because he was a bass player in a band, he would say, Oh, good on you, you got a knife and fork. He would hear knife and fork instead of that. Or, Hey, Dad, can you get me um, those Snickers cookies? And he would come back with cookies and Snickers separately, thinking, yeah... Anyway, that's my sister's experience. For me, it was um, he would pick me up from the Peel or, like, other gay clubs or wherever. He was just always around. He was somebody that was always around. And I I felt safe just knowing he was around because he was a cab driver, so he's always nearby. And I'd call him and be like, hey, D or message him and be like, hey, Dad, like, I'm here, like, can you pick me up in an hour and take me home? And then that's just gone. And then 
I don't know, there's a safety in knowing that somebody that's part of your family or that loves you is always there. But anyway, when I came out or was forced out by my sister, love you, Kira, but you forced me out, um, he patted me on the back and he said, good boy. I mean, you're nearly 18 now. I mean, good man. And then he pat me again. That was it. And then he tried to give me a sex talk. And it was adorable. Because he was trying to, like, figure out, like, how to make it gay-oriented. And it was just cringeworthy, as you would expect it to be. But half the shit he did was already that. So... He tried. He really tried. I really miss him. He was my person. Interestingly, or not interestingly, kind of a very common experience is um, I have suicidal ideation. Not intention, but ideation. I think about it every day. I think about him every day. How could you not? He is a missable person. (laughs) Um, but when you try to express that or when you try to say that, people take it much more seriously than it should be taken. Ideology is much different to intent. And so recently with my mental health, um, I had like taken a turn and my grief and I have even post-traumatic stress disorder because of what happened. Um, People are, like, extra cautious or think, like, um, I'm drinking too much or I'm doing something too badly or or I should be doing this for mum or whatever. Um, But I have a full-time job now. It's related to my degree. Um, But... It's hard to try and separate who I am from my, like, my identity as a person is so related to who I am as a family member that it's hard to figure out who I am separate from that. So when you take away all of the things, like, all of the, like, son, brother, everything... Like, who am I as a standalone person? It's I'm still figuring that out every single day. And that's actually something that's come up as a topic um, for myself. But I'm trying my best. I'm doing my best. And my life matters. And it's really hard to figure... I have such severely low self-esteem that figuring out that my life matters, Black Lives Matter, is, like, that... We have to put that on in on paint in a poster is extraordinary to me. And even though my mum might not have been the greatest parent at the time and may have said some hurtful things, and same with my sister, and same with my dad, and you know what, even my grandmother probably said some hurtful shit to some people. <laughs> that doesn't matter because we're still here and we always will be. And I am weakened because of them, but I am also strengthened because of them. 
who they are is who I want to be. Like, I admire so many parts about the some of the people who had hated me the most. Like, that girl, Melinda, who I wrote Abbo knows about, and her partner, Andy. They were extraordinary people. But they just were ignorant people as well. And a lot of people think that Aboriginality equals, like, anti-queerness, which is a really odd thing because brother boys and sister girls, I see you, like, they're out there. We're here. Like, queer anti-queerness, I don't know who's saying anything other than that, but Aboriginal people have always been open to identity and sexuality stuff. There's never been a problem there. So, in the conclusion of my life, like, what can I say? Like, um, I know that I have resilience. I know that I have grit, psychological grit or whatever. Um, I know that I give my best and I've done, like, everything that I possibly could. And I've, like, I come from commission housing. I come from, like... Red brick housing, kind of bullshit, growing up the only black person in a white suburb. We've done it all, and I am trying, and I guess that's what I said at the start, wasn't it? Like, I'm trying my best. I'm just trying. And I hope one day my biggest thing overall is that I feel satisfaction in my life, in everything that I do, in that I have duty, that I have purpose, that I have love, that I have done everything that I needed to do, and then I'll be okay to go. And that's me. That's Zach. My name is Zachary Joseph Penrith Pachelski. I am Yoda Yoda Jaja Warung. Polish, little bit Ukrainian, and I'm your friend, hopefully. Bye. (laughs)